0: Thanks a lot. I have not preached just one service in years, and it feels good. Wow. I can really unload on this service. Man, this will be fun. Well, to begin, as a special treat, I think uh, every good preacher knows you've got to begin with a good large crowd that's exciting by telling a few jokes. That's what a good preacher does. Makes them popular. People like them. So I'll tell a few jokes, see, see what you think. First joke goes like this. What did uh, one wall say to the other wall? Meet you at the corner. See? Pretty good jokes. They get better. What happens when you throw a red stone into a blue sea? It gets wet. See? You guys love these jokes. Third joke, here's a good one. Why did a boy go fishing with peanut butter in the ocean? He wanted to catch a jellyfish, Huh? huh? How about this one? What's the difference between an elephant and a loaf of bread? You don't know? I wouldn't want to take you to the grocery store. Yeah? And I got one more for you, very last one. I know you're loving it. We could go all day. Actually, I'm just giving you some stuff to use at the campfire. It really helps you with your kids. They love you. They'll run quick from these stupid jokes. Here's the last one. What is the best way to eat an elephant one bite at a time how did you know that bertha you tell these stupid jokes too don't you <laughs> these are white these are whitehead jokes <laughs> but today that's exactly what we're going to do we are going to eat an elephant today one bite at a time not physically but theologically we are going to attempt to swallow one of the biggest, most imposing, and often most frustrating topics found in the whole of the Bible. We are going to talk about the law. What does it mean? And ask the question why? What's the purpose of it? It's our next topic in our Book of Galatians study, so our approach is going to take one bite at a time. First, we're going to read it, and then we're going to butcher the elephant. One piece at a time. So if you can, go to Galatians. We're going to read uh, verses 10 and then 19 to the 25. Galatians chapter 3. Begins in verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. That's going to be the main thrust. Listen to that again. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. We talked about faith a lot last week, so let's jump right to verse 19. We talked about Abraham last week. So verse 19, Paul asks the question, what then? What was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgression until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. That's what we're gonna talk about. It sounds like a lot. And so my metaphor is going to be this whole idea of eating An elephant. To begin, just want to make some notes. First of all, we need to understand what Paul means by the law. Here in Galatians, Romans, Hebrews, Colossians, we need to understand what the reader is hearing when Paul writes law. The audience in this book, the Galatians, if you remember, they are being unduly influenced by the Judaizers. Those were Jews who wanted them to embrace the whole of the Mosaic law. So when he's talking about law, he's talking about the Mosaic Law. It's spelled like this. Go to the next slide. The Mosaic Law. What is the Mosaic Law? Well, it's the Torah. First five books of Moses. It's not just the Ten Commandments that Moses carried down Alpha Sinai on tablets. And when it says, if you notice in verse uh, 20, it talks about a mediator. The idea is that when those tablets were given, they were given to Moses by an angel. But it includes, the Mosaic law includes all of the codes, all of the laws, all of the behavioral expectations listed in the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Hebrew scholars and rabbis agree that the Mosaic Law included 613 positive commandments, acts that God wanted performed, and negative commandments, actions a person must abstain from. All of these are considered the Mosaic Law, and this is the elephant that we are going to eat. So when you see the elephant, the elephant represents the Mosaic Law. All of those commandments, those first five books, that's the Mosaic Law. Now, before we move on, you need to understand that the elephant contains, you can say, three prime cuts or three categories that you need to understand that are contained in it. Because when you hear Mosaic Law, it can be very big and imposing, just like this elephant. But it's divided into three parts. You have the ceremonial law. I have that as the hind end. You have the middle it's the civil laws. And then you have the moral laws of the Mosaic Law. The ceremonial laws represent laws that were given specifically to the nation Israel as they were preparing to enter the land of Canaan. Canaan had all these pagan nations and God wanted to identify Israel as different. You are different. So He gave them laws to say you are mine, separate, be different. And there's ceremonial laws. When they would dress differently, eat differently, work differently, and worship differently, it showed them to be a unique people. That's the point of ceremonial laws. Then you had the civil laws. Civil laws, the nation Israel was meant to live under the leadership of God. God was king. That is called a theocracy. God as law. We live under a democracy, which are the people of the law. The United States is not a theocracy. Even if we want to say we're a Christian nation, really we're not. You could say our Christian principles were underneath a lot of the documents, original documents, I'll give you that. But it doesn't mean God rules our country. Let's just be clear. But in Israel, God did. And so God gave them laws. As a theocratic union, God wanted peace and justice. So these civil laws and the Mosaic laws help them live in peace. Somebody's ox in another guy's hole, you had to give reparations. If a guy killed a man innocently, there were cities of ref- refuge where he could run and be protected and then he could have a fair trial. That's for justice. Those are civil laws. Moral laws, now you need to listen to moral laws. These laws are given to show mankind what is required to be a godly, moral, and mature human being. Let me say that again about moral laws. They are given to show a man or a woman what, what it means to be a godly, moral, mature human being, the way God wanted you to bear his image. They are not unique to Israel. They are a blueprint for all of us. These moral laws are our responsibility. These categories are very important to understand because most people don't know the differences in the law. Often, people will both ignorantly and sometimes purposely, they will ignorantly and purposely misapply the law, and it will confuse the whole whole thing. And because it's confusing, they just think they can throw the whole thing away. Let me give you a case in point. And I need to talk about it. You're like, quit talking about it, but we have to talk about it. The homosexual issue. One of the biggest debates in our culture is in regards to homosexuality and how you interpret the law when it comes to homosexuality. The Judeo-Christian argument begins back in Leviticus. Go to Leviticus 18. Genesis, then Exodus, Leviticus is the third book. And I want you to go to Leviticus 18. It's the first time it's very specifically mentioned. 18, verse 22, and then I'll show you the same thing in Leviticus 20, verse 13. Listen to verse 22. The law says, Do not lie with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. It's reiterated in chapter 20, just two chapters over, verse 13. And if you're wondering, does this mean a man lying with a man? Well, 20, verse 13 says, If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. Actually, law gets even harsher. They must be put to death. If you notice, the Bible's pretty clear. I mean, there's not a lot of wiggle room there. If a man lies with a man as he does a woman, it's detestable. I don't, I don't know if you can argue out of that. Just the clear reading. But this is how you get around it. People say, but wait, wait a minute. There's other parts in the book of Leviticus that says do not eat pig, do not eat shellfish, and do not eat shrimp. And I see people doing it all the time. And they're not sinning. So if you don't punish them for that, then how can you punish people for homosexuality? You need to understand three things. Number one, this argument shows a complete misunderstanding of the mosaic categories. They're ignorant of the mosaic categories and the purposes of those categories. When somebody says that, they really don't know the law. They're quoting something they don't know. Leviticus 18, if you go to Leviticus 18, I want to show you something about this chapter. This is known as the chapter on sexual purity. Scholars will call it porneo prohibition, sexually immoral actions that are prohibited. These are moral laws, and I'll show you why I'm saying they're moral laws. These commands, in chapter 18, deal with human dignity, human honor, wickedness, and perversion. Notice verse seven, and just listen to some of the things that are perverse. Verse seven, do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She's your mother. Do not have relations with her. Did you ever have anybody argue that point? The reason you don't, it dishonors your father. That means it tears down his position as representative authority in the home and his dignity, his human dignity. You're violating it. You're violating the sanctity of it. Look at verse 8. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. It's dishonoring. It's an issue of dignity, human dignity. Verse sixteen: Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. Same word, dishonor. It's issue of human worth and dignity. You're violating it. Verse seventeen: Do not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter. Do not have sexual relations with either her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. They are her close relatives. That's wickedness, purposeful evil, perversion. Verse twenty-one. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech. That's this God where they put it on these brass arms and they have a fire and it kills the child. Why not? Because it's profane. These are issues that bring, the, the violate dignity of the human being and the dignity of God's name. They're wicked, they are against nature of man, and they're perverse. That's what verse 22 means. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That's detestable, that's against nature. It's issues of moral codes. If you read the rest of this, it's obvious that human beings are meant not to live this way. Look at verse 23. Do not have sexual relations with an animal and you defile yourself with it. Pretty obvious. Nobody would argue that case. If you notice where homosexuality is couched, it's couched in those things that should be inherently wrong. Yes, that's wrong. Not only that, but they are reiterated in the New Testament as pornea prohibitions. 1 Corinthians 6, and we're going to show you 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, they have the same things. If you want to look that up later, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, 1 Timothy 1, through 8-13. So what about eating of foods? I mean, if we go to Leviticus 20 again, remember Leviticus 20, 13, talks about homosexuality is wrong, but if you look in verse 25, says you must therefore make a distinction between clean and unclean animals between unclean and clean birds do not defile yourselves by any animal or bird or anything that moves along the ground that which you've set apart is unclean for you so this could include pig shellfish and shrimp so if it's if homosexuality is wrong why then isn't this wrong I want you to look at the context starting in verse 22 Keep all my decrees and laws and follow them so that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. You must not live according to the customs of the nations I am going to drive out before you. Because they did all these things, I abhorred them. But I said to you, you will possess their land. I will give it to you as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from the nations. And then he says, you must therefore make a distinction between clean and unclean. Those are ceremonial words as I approach God and as they are set apart from the other nations. He's couching this as you're different than other nations. Don't do what they do. He's talking to the nation Israel. He wants them to be separated as a people for God. The word clean and unclean is often argued. These are issues of ceremonial worship. If, that doesn't, if you don't buy that argument, let's go to then the third point. Laws in every nation, every school, and every sport have directives that could seem contradictory if you take them out of context. If you take laws out of context, almost every code of law could seem contradictory. Let me give you an example. Have you ever in baseball heard of the infield fly rule? Raise your hand if you have. Raise your hand if you've never heard of that rule, infield fly rule, so I'm gonna talk to you guys, okay. Did you know in baseball, if you catch a, a, a ball, a guy hits a ball and it's in the air and you catch it in the air, it's considered an out. Did you, does that make sense? If you drop it, it's not an out, right? That's a basic law. That's right all the time, isn't it? Not with the infield fly rule. There's a man on first, second, and third, let's just assume, somebody hits a pop-up and there's only zero outs or no outs, and the shortstop decides to drop the ball so he can make a double play, it's considered that drop is still an out, even though he dropped it. So do I say, well, so what are you just picking and choosing? Oh, okay, so he drops it there, but if he drops it in the outfield, it's not an out. Oh, let's just scrap all the rules. Scrap the whole thing. That's how they deal, that's how our culture deals with the Mosaic Law. They don't take it in context or purpose. Specifically when it comes to food laws, it's about Israel. How do I know that? Go to Acts chapter 10 when God tells Peter to eat those different kind of foods that once were not allowed because he's going to be eating with Gentiles. Some will say that my argument is not as clear cut as I make it. These these, uh, ceremonial civil they're not as clear cut as that. And I will agree that butchering an elephant is tough. I'll agree to that. But we have to do our best. We have to apply it properly. We have to be people who rightly divide the word of truth. That's our responsibility. But regardless what is meant by the law, that is what's meant by the law. Now let us move on. The second question, let's go back to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10. And I want to ask this question, is the heart of the law bad? The law is big. Is it bad? Is it a bad thing for us? Because we run into a problem in verse 10. It says, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. So the law is a curse? Actually, Romans 7, Paul says, you know, when the law is applied, it reveals our sin. So is the law Sin? They get asked this question. If I look at the elephant's heart, go ahead and hit it. If the law can only curse me, what is the point of the law? Is it sin? And that's really the question here in verse 19. What then is the purpose of the law? The law, first of all, is not sin and it is not evil. Actually, the law is good. It's perfect. It was given to us to reveal the heart of God and his will for us. It shows us that he's holy and he wants us to be holy and lawful as well. The law shows us, and never forget this, the law shows us how to be morally mature people, how to grow up. That's the point of the law. People made and operating as his image on earth, God wants us to behave in a certain way. He really does want us to obey him. Let me say that again. He really does want us to follow and obey him. He does. In fact, you know this is true because Romans says, his law is written on your heart. What does that mean? That means when you see people living rightly, you know it's right. It's just you know it's right. You know the difference between a moral person and an immoral person and rightness in living rightly you know it's righteous you just know it is as I've been preaching through Galatians this is my 8th talk the first seven I tried to stay true to the text and faithfully follow Paul's intent and if you do that for seven weeks you keep hearing hammered you are saved by grace alone you are saved by grace alone not by the law you're saved by grace alone and after seven weeks of preaching, this constant drumbeat, a number of people have come up to me and here's what they've said. It sure sounds like you're saying nothing is really expected of us. Doesn't God want us to be good people? But if we're saved by grace alone, like you keep hammering, then what's the point of being a good person? You know, if people come and hear you, they're going to go out and just live the way they were before they came in here. Is that really what grace teaches? Sometimes people think it does. It's a great question. But Paul is saying, in our quest to live right, we must never put the cart of the law before the horse of grace. Never. We must first understand how important grace is, and then the law will make sense. And we really, actually, the law is going to be applied before we get to grace, but then when you understand grace, then the law is going to be understood. So to understand the purpose of the law, Paul must, in what he did for the first half of Galatians is he's trying to destroy the myth of the law before he gets to the purpose of the law. He's trying to destroy the myth of the law. There's a myth regards to the law that many of us believe. So what's the myth? I'll, I'll sing it, all right? You, you guys love it when I sing, here it is. I saw a peanut stand, I heard a rubber band I seen a needle that winked its eye, you know that song, but I think I've seen all everything till I see an elephant fly. That's the song from Dumbo. A lot of people think the elephant can fly, and did you know it's just a cartoon, elephants can't fly. It's a myth, and you're saying, what are you talking about? I'll put it like this. I think we believe this myth that elephants can fly, not yet, not yet, we can believe this myth that elephants can fly on three levels, level number one, I call the popular level of ignorance. Ask an average person on the street if they're going to heaven. Just, just ask any random person. Majority of times you're gonna get this answer. I think so. I try to follow the Ten Commandments and I, I'm doing the best I can. I'm not a killer or anything and I'm better than those mean, nasty conservatives, so sure, I'm a good person. So what they are saying is they are using the popular level of ignorance to say that, yes, elephants can fly. In other words, they're saying, yeah, I tried to do the law, that's enough. So in a way, elephants are light as a feather. Give a little bit of effort, and they'll be soaring easily. I, I just, I try, okay, I try. So that's enough, isn't it? That's a myth. That's not true. That's not how you're saved. There's what I would call the underground level of this lie in the church. A lot of us carry this lie and we don't know it. So here's how you reveal it. Ask a person in the pew if God is pleased with them. They will say, I hope so. I'm not sure I'm doing enough, praying enough, witnessing enough, but I've been going to church most of my life. But secretly, though, I I wonder if he really does accept me. I'm trying and I'm not doubting, so hopefully I'm in. In other words, this person's not quite sure they aren't quite sure if the elephant is supposed to fly. Maybe if I try harder, I get those ears flapping and I'll start taking off. But you know, the elephant's really heavy if you keep trying. It's really heavy. And then there's this third level. I'd call it sophisticated theology of collaborative soteriology. Do you like that? Say it again. The sophisticated theology of collaborative soteriology. These are fancy words for teaching that human action... Works together with God's grace to save a person. I say it's sophisticated because in many church circles it's believed the fancier and more serious sounding the words, and the more intelligent a person saying it, the more spiritual and holy it must be. They sound smart, so they must be right. So if you ask somebody who teaches this way, how is a person gained favor with God, they'll say salvation is faith operating collaboration with love in the sacraments. You must continue to participate in the avenues of grace God has given to you so you may have good standing with God. In other words, you're saved by working with effort with God. So you, also, you are flapping the ears hard. Dumbo, flap those ears hard and don't stop because if you do, we know how heavy an elephant is and it will crash. So you better maintain effort your whole life or else you're not pleasing God. But elephants can't fly. Translation, the law will never justify. Now you can put up. The law will never justify us. It will never make us right in God's eyes. It won't even sanctify us. We will never through effort and obedience be able to fully please God and satisfy his righteous demands. Look at Galatians 3.21. It's clear. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. It's inferring that the law cannot impart life. It can't cause you to fly. It cannot cause you to be equal with standing with the holy God. As much as you try, as hard as you work, as much as you do, the law can't cause you to be saved. It can't. It just can't. So then we're back to verse 19 again. And wh- why then the law? What's the purpose of it? I'm going to give you three big purposes of the law. And listen closely. The first one we're going to find in the Old Testament and the last two we're going to find here in Galatians. And they're really important. If you go to Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 7, this is one of the clearest statements of the purpose of the Mosaic law. And it's beautiful. I love it. Deuteronomy is the book written by Moses. It's his last book. He's getting, they're getting ready to go into promised land. Dudo means second giving of the law. So Moses wrote this law, and in chapter 4, he is going to reiterate to God's people why they were given the law in the first place. Now look at verses 5 through 8 of chapter 4. Moses writes, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all of these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? So, questions about that. First of all, at any time in what I just read, did God say these laws were meant to save and redeem and rescue them? Not once. Here's a question for you. When you think about the nation Israel, and when they were in slavery in Egypt, what really was the moment that God saved them? It was called the Passover. The Passover was a moment when all the firstborn's blood was spilled, firstborn lamb, to rescue the firstborn. And they put this blood over the mantle, over the doorframe, and the angel of death would pass over The next day, Pharaoh said, you are set free. So when they were set free, then they went through the Red Sea. So the slavery in Egypt is a metaphor of sin and being in bondage to sin. The Passover is a metaphor to our purchase of redemption when we were saved. The the Red Sea is a metaphor of resurrection. They went down into the depths like they were dying and they came up out of the water and they were freed. When was the law of Moses given? at Pentecost, 50 days later. So the metaphor of salvation happened before the law was given. So according to this then, what's its purpose? It's very clear. It says, this will show your wisdom. And it will have people asking who are watching you, what other nation is so great as to have their gods near to them like Israel has their gods near to them? They are so wise. Man, man. They got it made with those laws. As a parent, you understand this, and I'll give you a little illustration. You want your kids to respect, bring respect to the family name when they're out in public. You don't say the first day of school, Johnny, it's the first day of school. I want you to pull the girl's hair, throw your lunch at the lunch lady, and swear at the principal. It will really be great for the family name. I want you to do that. No, you say, Johnny, behave because parent-teacher conferences are coming up and I want to look good as a parent. I do. We all do, honestly. You'll say you don't, but you do. You want to go in there and the teacher looks at you with, you know, like she's floating when you walk into the room going, oh, what dazzling children you have. You don't want the teacher Locking and double bolting when they see your names next on the list and they don't they hide. I'm not here. I don't want to talk about your kid. You want your kid to make you look good. I know that seems unfair, but that's exactly the purpose of the law. God wants to look good, and when you follow the law, he shines. You still wallowing in the same depravity that you were before you were saved does not bring glory to God. It actually brings ill repute to his name. Ring number two. Let's go now back to Galatians. Galatians uh, chapter three, verse 19 and 24 give the second purpose. Verse 19 says, uh, what then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgression." until the seed whom the promise referred to has come. The law was put in effect through angels. It was given because of transgression. Verse 24 adds to it, adds a little bit more color to it by saying, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So ring number two is kind of like this elephant, that big elephant leading a little teeny elephant. According to verse 19, we need the law because we are sinners and transgressors. The law keeps us in check and leads us to maturity. Verse 24 has the idea that the law is like a guardian or a tutor leading us along till we come to Christ. One writer, one Greek scholar writes, the word designated, in verse 24, a slave employed in Greek and Roman families who had general charge over boy and he from about six years old to 16. He watched over his outward behavior and took over him, took charge over him whenever he went from home to school. The slave was entrusted with the moral supervision of the child. That's what the law is intended to do. It's give us moral supervision. It was meant to train up both the Israeli and the Jew and the Gentile in order to lead them to Christ. I'll show you what I mean by this very specifically. Go to 1 Timothy. Timothy spells it out very clearly how it's, the law is meant to train us. Starting in verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 8. We know that the law is good. Paul's right. The law is good. Remember, the heart of the law is good. If one uses it properly. We also know the law's not made for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and the rebels, the ungodly and the sinful. You can say all of that wrapped up for the transgressors, those who don't really care or don't know. That's who the law is made for. It's really not made for the righteous, and I'll explain that why in a second. And then it goes on to kind of describe who the rebels, ungodly, lawbreakers, and sinners are. They're unholy, means they don't want God, they're irreligious, they could care less about his ways. For those who kill their fathers or mothers, that's a bad thing, killing your mom and dad. For murderers, for adulterers, those are people that sleep with somebody that's not their spouse. For perverts, that actually in the Greek, more specifically is homosexual offender. For slave traders, Slave traders, people who buy and sell slaves. Did you know that it's wrong in the Bible? Often people say, well, in the Bible has slaves. And it's kind of like, well, there's a whole difference between indentured slavery where it's kind of like you're paying off credit and buying, taking somebody and then selling them. This condemns it. Also liars and perjurers, people who don't tell the truth in, in court and whoever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. So he's saying the law is for these people. In other words, the law is given because people in their sin are acting like stupid little elephants or stupid children. And until you grow up, you need the supervision of the law. Remember how I said earlier, moral laws are given to show mankind what is required to be godly, moral, and mature. These actions listed here and specifically in verse 9 and 10, those are not godly and mature behaviors. Actually, they're quite silly, stupid, foolish, and wicked. When you steal or when you lie, when you perjure, you're revealing that God means nothing to you. So you need to be disciplined by the law. When you hit your parents, when you kill your parents, you are not just a spoiled kid, but you are a rotten The law says two things to the child. It says stop it. Stop it. That's not right. And the law also says, you were made for more than this. That's really what the law is saying. God designed you in His image for more than this kind of behavior. Grow up. Mature. Mature. I know even when I say... It says perverts there i know homosexual couples don't like this let's say i'm pointing out they just don't like this but honestly if you want to build a healthy covenant god honoring family with healthy mature children honestly you need a mother and a father you really do you really do that is the way god has designed maturity and humanity to work it's called shalom shalom is this idea you, you guys know what shalom is. Have you ever had? You bought a brand new car and you turn the you turn the key and it just purrs. The motor purrs and everything's working right. You get the it's just everything works. That's shalom. Have you ever had a car where it's got like six pistons but only two work and it's shooting gas out the back? That's almost every car I've ever. Owned. And I you know I put it in fourth gear and little kids on their bikes are passing me. I'm driving. Look, it's working great. But that's not shalom. That's not how it's supposed to really be. Yeah, but it got me from one place to the other. God has designed you for maturity and glory. Not just for your selfish behavior. Ring number three. Galatians 3, and 23 gives us the final purpose of the law. And this is a tough one, but you'll understand it. Verse 22 and 23. The scriptures declare the whole world, the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe, verse 23, before faith came. We were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. We in prison. What's the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is to show us we are enchained, or in a way, another way to put it, it's to crush us and to say we can't do it. See, the law, or sin is tricky because when it, it's in all of us, but it lies to us, so we don't think it's in all of us. When we're stuck in sin, sin, sin as us believing, we are not stuck. Sin blinds us to our problem, it deceives making us believe we are better than we really are. So how does God fix us? By giving us the law to show us how bad we really are. That's really the purpose of the law. It reveals our badness. If God did not give us the law, we wouldn't really know we're doing anything wrong. I'll I'll give you an illustration, and I don't mean to pick on my sons, but you'll understand it. This past week, my family went swimming at a swimming pool and it had a really nice twirly slide. It's a light blue twirly slide, it's really nice. My, son, my two sons are growing faster than I think they realize. Well, when my oldest son went down the slide a few times, I was watching him and the slide and it looked like that thing was going to rip off its foundations. It was bad, like he'd go down its twirly slide. I thought the whole slide was going to collapse in. They didn't really think anything about it until I asked, hey, does the pool have a weight limit on that slide, is there anything posted? And sure enough, if you look on the wall, my boy's weight limit exceeded the slide by a lot of pounds. The law revealed what was wrong and what was proper use. If there was no posted sign, I wouldn't probably tell them to stop. I'd just hold my fingers and hope it didn't get destroyed. But because there's a posted sign, uh, don't go on that. No, uh-uh. And why not? Because we'll get kicked out of here. Don't go on that. You get nervous. Oh, no. But don't go on the slide. Why? Because that's what the sign says. It's posted. The law revealed the wrong. It shows me I can't do it. People often think they are living a life pleasing to God by their normal life. They just, what they normally do. When they don't know the law, they don't really think they're doing anything wrong. When people go camping and they get drunker than a skunk and when they oogle women at the next campsite or when they get in a fist fight, if they don't know the law, they really in a sense don't know they're doing wrong. Some think it's actually really cool. It's the height of humanity to do that. To get into a fight at a bar, man, when I'm drunk, that's, that's the height of manhood. But then when you read the law and the law says do not get drunk on wine, oh, oh, God doesn't, he doesn't like it. When they don't know the law, they don't really think they're doing anything wrong. And because we are sinners, we have a tendency to think we're always doing the right thing because the sin lies to us. And then a verse like James 2.10 comes in. And it says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. Huh? Who? Whew. In other words, Paul's saying the law is perfect and we are not. And since we are not, we are all guilty and that's the point. The point of the law is to feel the weight of the elephant and saying, I can't hold it anymore. Exactly right. Exactly so. So what does God want? I'm going to read three verses in Galatians and see if you can figure it out. What does God want? And he's always wanted this. Galatians 3.12. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. The law is not based on faith. Galatians 3.22, the scripture declares the whole world's a prisoner of sins that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 24, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. What does God want? He wants us to exercise faith. He wants us to trust him in his word. He wants us as his children to follow him by faith. That's what he wants. Faith in his word, but more specifically, faith that his son will fulfill his word in my life and will justify me, sanctify me, empower me, and move me to do his will. I have faith in that. And that's what I live by. That's what sets me free. God wants faith. I'll tell you a story. And then I'll see if this wraps it up. I, I read this. It's Dr. Harry Ironsides. And he was, a, he was a really good preacher. And he tells this story. How years ago he, uh, he went to Oakland, California to speak to a church. And with him he brought a Navajo Indian. He writes, one Sunday evening, he went to a young people's meeting, and they were talking about the epistle of Galatians, about law and grace, but they were not very clear about it, and finally someone turned to the Navajo Indian, and they asked the Indian, I wonder whether our Indian friend has anything to say about this. He rose to his feet, and he said, well, my friends, I have been listening very carefully because I am here to learn all I can in order to take it back to my people. I do not understand what you're talking about, and I do not think you do yourselves, but concerning this law and grace, let me see if I can make it clear. I think it is like this. When Mr. Ironsides brought me from my home, we took the longest railroad journey I ever took. We got out at Barstow, and there I saw the most beautiful railroad station with hotel above it that I ever saw. I walked around and I saw at one end a sign that said, do not spit here. I looked at that sign and then I looked down at the ground and saw many had spit there. And before I could really think about what I was doing, I spit there myself. Isn't that strange when the sign says, do not spit here. I come to Oakland and go to the home of a lady who invited me to dinner today. And I'm in the nicest home I've ever been in my life. Such beautiful furniture and carpets, I hate to step on them. I sank into a comfortable chair, and a lady said, Now John, you sit there while I go out and see whether the maid has dinner ready. I looked around at the beautiful pictures, at the grand piano, and I walk all around these rooms, and I'm looking for a sign. The sign I am looking for is do not spit here. But I look around those two beautiful drawing rooms, and I cannot find a sign like this. I think, what a pity when this is such a beautiful home to have people spitting all over it. Too bad they don't put up a sign. So I look all over that carpet, but I cannot find that anyone spit on the carpet. What a funny thing. When the sign says, do not spit, a lot of people spit. Here, however, where there is no sign, nobody spits. Ah now I understand the Indian says the sign is law but inside the home is grace they love their beautiful home they want to keep it clean and I love them for having me over and I too want to keep it clean I think that explains law and grace and he sat down you see the the difference is law tells us something to do with something we don't own and we don't own it we really don't care about it and it reminds us what we don't want to do but we do it anyway but grace is about something we do own something that is precious to us we own the life of christ he lives in me why do i want to spit on his image by being a lawbreaker why somebody put it like this it's kind of like you're before your bride, you see a lady with a wedding dress. you jealously so you throw mud at her, get that dress all dirty. You don't care, it's not your dress. but what happens when the groom gives you a new wedding dress? Do you go wallow in the mud with it? No, you want to keep that dress as pure as it's ever been, because it's yours, and it bears reflection on your groom. That's what grace is. This is mine. I own it. Christ is mine. I want to make him shine. I don't want to spit on. How about you? Let's bow and let's pray. Father, I do pray that, God, you'd help us to understand this incredible balance between law and grace. Help us to make sense out of it. Help us to be obedient children. Help us to want to follow you. Thank you, God, for really a beautiful week. And Thanks again for a a day like the 4th where we remember the gifts you've given us. And just thank you for your love. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.